Welcome. It's uh, Steve Elmore, and this is another edition of GGX, uh, the podcast that who needs another podcast? That's the answer you're going to give. Dennis Pombriant, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, so what, what do you think about this podcasting thing? Do you think it's uh, got legs? I sure hope so. I got a kid in school trying to learn how to do this really well. So I'm, I'm rooting for it. Well, I've been rooting for it a long time as well. Uh, there you go. Going back to the beginning. But uh, uh, today, uh, it's very difficult to think about anything other than a couple of subjects. Uh, what's uh, on your mind today? Um. Oh gosh, you know, you know, one of just parenthetically, one of the things that always intrigues me is uh, how people find time to listen to podcasts, and it strikes me that uh, I, I'm I'm a, sort of an outlier because I don't drive anywhere, I don't commute, uh, and so I don't find a lot of time. But I know people that do those things uh, will probably be very happy about podcasting. Um, you can also learn quite a bit. Uh, stuff you didn't know but anyhow to, to answer your question i guess uh i guess uh well there are two things uh, professionally i'm very interested in uh in software platform technology and the way it's revolutionizing um the software industry uh, and giving legs to the digital disruption uh, perhaps legs that uh, the disruptors never thought about or didn't think hard about and of course, the other thing is uh, the uh, national and international uh, Michigas that is just encompassing everything and engulfing uh, all of my free. Well, before we go down that rat hole, let's talk about what you mean by platform. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've gotten to a point where uh, software development is no longer a, a tedious manual process. We went through a lot of uh, third generation, fourth generation languages and, and case tools and things like that over the last 30 years. But recently, I'd say within the last decade, we've, we've come up with really smart software that builds other software. And not only does it uh, generate code, but it also knits together uh, the increasing array of uh, applications uh, like commerce applications or workflow or uh, intelligent applications that need to go together to form uh, whole systems of engagement these days. Uh, that's what I mean by platform. And I, I think it's, uh, it's really cool stuff. It's a great time to be in this business. And what do you think that, uh, uh, obviously, it, along with many things, grew on top of uh, the so-called cloud, uh, because it, uh, it allowed people to basically treat software as a service. Would that be uh, your thought? It would be, although I, I, I would take a, a more of a, an economics analytical approach to it and, and say that uh, cloud computing was sort of the first commoditization of uh, the software industry. And the second commoditization is, is platform. I think it's, it's, it's hard to have cloud computing and still have uh, tedious, slow software development processes because uh, the internet just uh, runs at such a fast rate 
And so having uh, the ability to make good software cheap or almost free these days is, uh, is absolutely essential to anybody's business plan. So free uh, in the commercial space, uh, you know, the, the conventional or maybe accurate wisdom is that services like Facebook and uh, uh, other social software are basically they monetize themselves turning the uh, customer, the user into the product. Do you agree with that? Well, sure. Um, I, I think that's not the only way to monetize uh, software, and I don't even think it's a good model, uh, given all of the uh, the havoc that uh, that model has wreaked uh, in in global affairs. Uh, but certainly, it is a model, and uh, uh, you know, we, I, I, it's less it's less of a useful model when you get into enterprise software and enterprise computing and you have to, uh, you know, build, build ERP or CRM systems that uh, run in the cloud. So uh, give me an idea about what you find most uh, interesting about, uh, about uh, these kinds of application development platforms uh, in the enterprise space. Honestly, uh, the, the way these systems can um, sort of, sort of um, predict the future, understand what's happening, and, and make a logical uh, recommendation is, is absolutely huge, huge, because we've, we've crossed over from uh, traditional IT, traditional enterprise software that was really just a glorified record-keeping systems and moved into um, an era of, of um, systems of engagement, engagement software, software that, uh, that can recommend the next best thing for, for a customer or um, capture a customer's uh, complaints, at least to the point of, of uh, triage so that the, you know, a, a human can take over from there and, and spend less time but be more effective. So uh, it's, it's really those systems of engagement that uh, these, these platforms are enabling that is really exciting to me. And uh, what does that draw on uh, in terms of your background, in terms of your interests, uh, you know, going back to when you first started figuring out who you were? <laughs> you, mean, you mean last week? Yeah, yeah that works. You know, I've been in the software industry since the 1980s, so that's that's a long time. And um, uh, I think I think in the last 20 years, as I've been immersed in CRM and cloud computing, uh, things have gotten better and better, uh, giving us opportunities to do things in business that uh, you, you simply couldn't do with, with a mainframe. Uh, you couldn't do it with mini computer or you couldn't do it with client server. Uh, what we have today is, uh, is really, really breathtaking, I think. The post-client server era um, gives us computing on a variety of platforms, but it also gives us far, far more intelligent applications, which I think is more important than even being able to uh, do so many things on your handheld device. The fact that uh, you, you have an intelligent application that can that can function sort of as, as either a partner or uh, an intelligent interlocutor um, means, means the world in, in, a, in a 
in a set of circumstances where you might not be talking to a human being and you might have limited time and limited ability to, to get something done and, and being able to offload some of your, your, uh, your, uh, your bucket list, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. is, is useful. It's extremely useful. Yeah. I, I, I find it fascinating to see how, uh, the, what I would call gestures, the, uh, the signals that you, uh, proliferate because, uh, you're interested in doing that. For example, uh, I use search very infrequently uh, in text, but I find myself more and more using Siri or whatever other uh, network I'm on uh, to ask a question and get an answer much more quickly. And over time, that seems to build up, uh, you know, a fluency, and a speed improvement that uh, I think uh, bakes itself into the way we live our lives. So I think that's pretty pretty important oh exactly and, and it's somewhat annoying too uh because uh that's happening in my life and uh i i, I can tell you it's it, the annoying part is is when my wife asks me something and i give her an answer i give her the best answer i can out of my head and then she picks up her phone and <laughs> asks <laughs> siri or does a search and uh, informs me that i'm wrong um uh, you know, my thing is, well, if, if you're going to do that in the first place, why embarrass me? Just go do it. Uh, but I find myself doing the same kinds of things, uh, asking Siri this or that. And uh, it, it, it can even work its way into into your life and become sort of a, a, uh, a topic of conversation around the dinner table. We talk to them, we get information, we turn it into a uh, we can even turn it into a dinner table part of a dinner table conversation where, where, you know, you're, you're talking about something and, and, you know, you just need to know what the capital of Indiana is or whatever, and, and you find it. Well, it's a, it's a delightful uh, kind of toy, uh, but it also, as I think you're indicating, uh, it's changed the way that people uh, work and do business. Uh, and isn't that what you uh, do is, as an analyst uh, is describe and uh, assess uh, the capabilities of these systems in modern life? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just to put a, a, a point on it, uh, my last book had uh, 200 citations and I think 199 of them were, were all from the internet. Um, I didn't happen to use Siri uh, to, to get any of that information, but that, Using Siri is, is really a hop, skip, and a jump from, from typing something into a browser and, and getting instantaneous access to important information that you need. Yeah, I keep finding that uh, I'm starting to use the transcription capability, you know, the little microphone that's in the input field. I don't know if I dictate an email yet, but I, I find uh, it's very convenient to dictate a text or dictate something on the, the Gilmore Gang uh, app uh, and not worry about the spelling or the punctuation. Right. The context sometimes is a, a, a little faulty in transcription services. Uh, you know, it'll spell something correctly, but it's uh, like a pun rather than the word you're looking for. Yes, and it, it, uh, it can make some very interesting substitutions. What's your take on uh, where we are in the 
uh, crisis that never ends. If you're, you're if you're asking about um, the whole impeachment thing, it's um, it's tracking pretty much as um, as I uh, predicted the third time I made a prediction, and um, it it's just it's just amazing that it just keeps getting worse, at least worse for the president. You seem to have a, a more uh, optimistic view of. Uh, a very pessimistic subject, if you if you follow what I'm trying to say. Whereas I I feel that I'm more pessimistic uh, uh, about uh, the possibility of optimism. Well, I would say I, I, perhaps I'm more sanguine um, about it because I think um, I think life has a uh, at least life in the United States has a bias towards working out. And I think uh, we, we still have a great uh, number of people, uh, perhaps the majority of people based on data that I've seen, who want to work this out, who um, want to uh, have an impeachment, have a trial, perhaps have a removal. And uh, uh, they are working uh, tirelessly to make that happen. I don't know if you caught the news today, but I guess uh, the current... Uh, uh, Ukrainian ambassador, I think his name is Bill Taylor, uh, testified in behind closed doors and, and uh, gave just just absolutely damning testimony about uh, the whole quid pro quo thing. Mm -hmm. So, which is it? Is it important to prove quid pro quo, or is it already uh, uh, an impeachable offense? I think we have. Uh, uh, plenty of uh, plenty of evidence uh, in in the form of admissions by president and other people uh, that a quid pro quo did take place, and we have uh, other evidence from uh, people who were there. So um, I think I think that's all in line. I think the the question now becomes whether or not uh, twenty uh, Republican senators are persuadable. Uh, in order to get to 67 votes, basically. Yeah. Well, I would suggest that, uh, again, I'm not as sanguine about this as you are. Uh, so I would look more uh, uh, specifically at how does, how do the Democrats, uh, uh, what do they do to make it effective to change the composition of the government uh, in ways that would uh, tend to be more reachable than uh, looking for 20 cent, uh, votes? Well, I think you have to have a... I, I appreciate your question. I think you, you need to have a short-term and a long-term strategy. I think the short-term strategy is is uh, winning the next election. The, the longer-term strategy is uh, taking some learnings from the last four years and... and creating some, um, some new strictures in law. And I think one of the, one of the things uh, that we can do that's been talked about is uh, increasing the number of representatives in the House. Um, the number of 435 was set about a century ago. And um, rather than raising the number of, of people in the House, the uh, the Congress has chosen to uh, increase the size of the, of the district, which 
is one way to do it. But uh, research has shown that in uh, other democracies around the world, the um, the number of people in a representative um, house, like a Congress or Parliament or whatever, uh, is is equal to the cubed root of the population, and that's that's pretty interesting because that. Um, if you graph it, there are an awful lot of uh, nations on the earth that, that follow the cube root or something close to it. Uh, getting the cube root in America would raise the number of uh, people in the House of Representatives to something like 615. I could be wrong about that. I haven't done the math lately. Well, uh, when you say cube root, my brain goes numb. So can you boil it down for civilians? Well, a cubed root is uh, a number that multiplied by itself twice. So A times A times A would be A, uh, would be a cubed. Uh, the cubed root of A cubed is A. So 2 times 2 times 2 is 8. The, the cubed root of 8 was 2. So 615 roughly is the cubed root of our current population, which is like about uh, 325 million. Okay. So, uh, I was hoping that we were going to have, that we were going to move more toward immediate. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of heavy lifting to get to, uh, changing the composition of the, uh, house. Uh, that's a a long-term possibility, correct? Well, I mean, that's that's one example. I mean, we also talked about legislation, legislation taking the form of uh, uh, any any president shall uh, uh, divest himself of his him, his or her holdings and, and not have any uh, conflicts of interest. That kind of thing is a piece of legislation that could could happen uh, you know, after after the 2020 elections. Well, one of the things that happened after. Uh, uh, the Nixon uh, resignation were were some laws that uh, firmed up the uh, special counsel, I believe it was, the independent counsel, and or uh, as a result of the independent counsel, which had some uh, independence, uh, they were able to get further than uh, what appears to have happened with the Mueller investigation. So, uh, in other words over time, uh, the advances of legislation after a problem seems to dissipate and uh, uh, the norm returns to uh, more of a, a, a centrist uh, perspective. Yeah, you're describing reversion to the mean, and I mm-hmm. agree with you. And, uh, um, yeah, there are, there are ways to deal with that. I don't know if anybody would have the... Uh, the insight or the the interest in doing that, but uh, you know, clearly one one way to do it would be to have a mandatory review of, of election laws. For example, uh, we do it with other legislations with sunset uh, provisions. Um, it would seem to me that uh, we we could generate a uh, uh, more power for say the Federal Election Com- Commission to. Uh, uh, continually review and uh, improve uh, the way we do we do elections. I mean, 
you know, built into the Constitution is is a is is a uh, dictate that will uh, enumerate or take a census of the entire population every decade. And we do that so that uh, we, we can have uh, the information we need to appropriate funding and, and, and you know do things like build roads and what have you. Um, so there's that would not be without precedent. Uh, what you were just saying strikes me as having a parallel in the Facebook issue with the government and, you know, the difficulty in being able to address the clear uh, implications of, you know, out of control uh, use of bots, etc. It seems like Facebook is a, a pretty intractable problem uh, in terms of regulation uh, based on the same question uh, that uh, I'm trying to get at as far as uh, trying to legislate or fix the problems in uh, this constitutional crisis. Do you, do you see any similarity between those two uh, difficulties? Well, I see difficulties, but I have to be honest with you. I think the Facebook social media problem is an easy one to fix. And um, uh, it's, it's a problem that arises uh, with every whenever a a disruptive innovation gains traction and becomes large and the society comes to uh, to depend on it um, what i what i've seen historically is is that um, those those disruptive innovations eventually become uh, commoditized and uh, either become utilities or become regulated uh, regulating uh, social media i think uh, I don't have all the answers, but I think would would start with um, uh, requiring certification of people who use it for uh, non-personal commercial uh, uses, and uh, would require uh, uh, people to um, identify themselves uh, appropriately when when they create accounts. I mean, Facebook just took down, I think, something like fifty accounts from. Uh, from Russia over Eastern Europe that, uh, you know, were, were dubious. And um, I think it's, 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 it's not a hard problem to, uh, to apply that kind of regulation right now. <coughs> excuse me. If you're, if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, an electrician, a beautician, you all, everybody gets, has to take some kind of certifying exam and is, is regulated at the state level. Even uh, certified public accountants, CPAs, are certified. Um, certification uh, puts the responsibility for uh, regulation on professional uh, organizations. So you might graduate uh, medical school and you might get a, a medical license through your state licensing board. But after that, uh, if you become a thoracic surgeon, you, you are a member of the College of thoracic surgeons and you are you are uh, regulated and, and expected to follow best practices of, of, of your college uh, it's the same if you're an electrician or a plumber you can't you you might be able to change the, the faucet in your kitchen without a, a plumbing license but if you if you went to somebody else's house you couldn't do that if you had to dig up the street to uh, install a new water line you couldn't do that without a, a license I, I think that uh, 
with all the technology we have, it's, it's, it's very doable, but uh, society needs to protect itself from, from the bad guys. The problem, as I see it, is, is that uh, how these uh, attacks uh, on uh, election services, for example, how they manifest themselves is in reaching civilians, essentially, through a, a strategy of arousing and inflaming people. So how, how do you legislate against that? I don't quite understand the license that you would create and who would have to have it. Well, um, pretty, pretty basically in, in my mind, um, if, if uh, you register yourself as um, Steve Gilmore, KGB agent living in Kiev or wherever, I don't know, Minsk, um, all of a sudden uh, you, you're, you're traceable and it's, it's a much easier task for Facebook's um, uh, bots, AI systems to, uh, to track what you're doing. And if you're suddenly, uh, you know, if you're, if you're building a, a site with, with uh, 100,000 bots and, and it's going out uh, talking about flat, flat earth theories, uh, that that's something that could be easily flagged and Facebook or, or Twitter or whoever um, could take appropriate action to safeguard their, their networks. Uh, a lot of these attacks are moving to Instagram because it's easier to be able uh, to uh, inflame uh, and anger and incite uh, in visual form. Than, uh, and at the same time, it's more difficult to detect it. I hear you. Um, I think I read that piece. Um, I don't think it changes much, though. I think, uh, you know, right now, we, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has got some, some husky computing and a lot of algorithms trying to, trying to find uh, needles in a haystack. I think if you're, if you're going to identify yourself as, as Ivan the Terrible uh, from Minsk, um, that, makes, that makes finding you and, and tracking what you're doing a whole lot easier all of a sudden. Okay, so I did want to get back to trying to prod from you a solution that wasn't going to take uh, light years uh, to implement. How do the Democrats uh, choose a candidate? How does the media uh, support a more effective way of uh, dealing with the current constitutional problems that we're facing as a result of uh, the president's uh, uh, strategies. I, I've noticed on some of the cable shows the, there's the, the, they're beginning to report on some of the angst in the Democratic Party about uh, you know people saying oh gee we don't have any good candidates. The Democrats seem to be having a bit of buyer's remorse at this point, wondering if any of their candidates are going to be adequate. Um, but I think that's the cognoscenti. It's not it's not the, the people on the ground, the people who are going to caucus in Iowa or vote in, in New Hampshire. I think they've got a pretty good uh, understanding of things and they're working really hard to, to uh, uh, interview the people and, and, and make, dis make de determinations. So um, the other thing I'd say is, is that uh, the primary is a single elimination tournament. We seem to wring our hands when, when one candidate or another doesn't, doesn't meet the threshold for participating in a 
a debate or moving further in, into the um, process. But it's a field of 20, and uh, only one's going to emerge. And you have to expect that people are going to fall out one for one reason or another. They might be your favorite, but, you know, life goes on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that what's happening... I mean, I have my own scenario about what I find interesting uh, about this elimination tournament. Uh, what's yours? Oh, I don't know if I've gone any further than uh, than what I've been talking about. I mean, you mean how it's going to all net out? Well, I mean, we've got these two uh, basic themes here. One is uh, the elimination tournament, and the other is the the impeachment strategy as to whether or not they uh, sync up, uh, if so, when, uh, would be a unifying uh, question to ask. But uh, either one, I think, is interesting. Uh, all right, I'll start myself. Yeah, well, uh, true. Go ahead. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, Mayor Pete uh, is in a very interesting position. Uh, and I, I think some of the media is starting to pick up on that. Uh, some of the polling data is starting to suggest uh, the potential validity of that. And uh, Buttigieg is in uh, third place uh, within uh, reaching distance of the two uh, frontrunners, uh, Biden and uh, Warren. Uh, so I think that he has a good chance of not winning necessarily, but coming in second in Iowa, which uh, traditionally coupled with uh, the first primary in, I believe it's New Hampshire, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, the things that happen with the actual winner of the New Hampshire primary are not as important as the person uh, who can, you know, like the comeback kid, Bill Clinton, coming in, I believe, second. Correct. Uh, when he was when he was written off. So, uh, so I think that there's an interesting dynamic there, which is then, uh, uh, which puts Buttigieg on the rise as opposed to uh, Biden, who I think, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, has. Uh, already reached his the zenith of his popularity uh, in the primaries, uh, except for possibly South Carolina, which we can get to in a minute. So I don't want to be too verbose about this, but basically I think that uh, it's kind of like uh, uh, a rebound off of, uh, you know, a, a strong uh, showing in Iowa uh, a credible uh, growing momentum uh, for second or even third place in New Hampshire. Uh, and then, uh, you know, basically what happens uh, as they get, you know, toward the big Super Tuesday and California, et cetera, uh, kind of, uh, of primaries. I think he's got a pretty good chance of being a credible uh, candidate uh, versus because mostly because of his centrist positions in the Democratic Party. 
Well, I think there's a lot to like in what you say. I think, uh, I think one of the things we, we don't do very well in uh, public life is, is actually applying uh, a little game theory to, to situations like this. I think if you, if you were to graph this, I think you, you, you'd have to graph every candidate as if it were a hurricane on a weather map with a, a, a cone of probability. Uh, you know, the fur further out you go, the, the wider the cone is, the uh, closer in to uh, the present, the, the narrower the probabilities of what, what could likely happen be. And of course, when, when something like uh, a heart attack with Bernie Sanders or uh, Joe Biden having a, a flub, uh, those things can't be predicted, but they are, they are the steering currents of these hurricanes and uh, cause, cause disruptions, uh, which is why everybody wants to stay in the race because you just don't know what you don't know. You wanna, uh, even, if you're, uh, even if you're not in, in first, second, or even third place, you wanna be there uh, on caucus day to uh, find out what the voters really think. There's only one way you can do that. It's, you gotta be in, in the contest. So, um, yeah, I don't think we I, I don't think we pay enough attention to how we game things out or, or how things change over time when uh, something like a heart attack occurs. Right. And I think that uh, in terms of Biden, I think that his uh, you know, honestly, I think uh, Trump has been effective uh, with uh, his uh, attempts at uh, a constitutional crisis over. Uh, Biden and his son, uh, because uh, unfortunately Biden is not answering the question. And I think similarly, uh, uh, I, uh, Elizabeth Warren is not answering the question that Buttigieg posed, posed to her in the uh, last debate, which is, how are you going to pay for this? Yeah. And uh, I think that the, the, what people read, especially through the medium of television and more and more social, is they, they read the tea leaves of the emotion uh, as important or even more important than the, the facts. Uh, and so I, I think that they're both, both candidates are making, uh, I thought Hillary made the same kind of mistake by uh, you know, essentially treating the attacks on her as uh, illegitimate because she knew that they were illegitimate. But what she didn't think about or didn't really indicate in her campaign was uh, responding to how people thought about those attacks. That's a very insightful. I, 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 I think there's a lot there. Um, I don't know if you happen to see Paul Krugman's column this morning, but he was he wrote a column about uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren and answering the question. And I think uh, I think she needs to do that. And I, I think she's in the process of uh, putting a plan together and something that she can announce. Um, but on, on the other hand, I, I think uh, I think everybody in the Democratic primary is, is being disingenuous about the problem. And yes. the the um, the issue I think is is that 
they leave you with the impression that uh, changing healthcare or fixing healthcare is something that can be de- done in a four-year presidential term. Uh, my point would be that uh, we're dealing with one-sixth of the U.S. economy. Uh, one out of every six GDP dollars goes to healthcare. That's not going to be changed in, in four years. And I think, uh, I think the, the honest thing to say is, is that it's probably going to take 10 years and that we're going to be in a, a transition state for a long time and that the transition state should include private insurers and people would, would either get uh, expanded Medicare coverage from their employers uh, instead of uh, private health insurance or, or they'd get private health insurance. But the point is that it would take probably 10 years and it would probably uh, be one of those things that uh, uh, in a typical A-B test where, where uh, uh, people vote with their feet. Right. And uh, so who do you think is going to get closest to being able to express that? I don't know. I haven't heard anybody try. I think, uh, I think that's the, the part where I think everybody's being in, disingenuous. You know, when you, you stand up on a, on a podium and, and say, well, we should have, we should fix Obamacare or we should have Medicare for all or we should uh, do, do X. Uh, it's, it's, it's really nonsense. The, the devil's in the details. Nobody wants to talk about the details. They, they, they rush to find out uh, what it's going to cost instead of what it's going to deliver, which I think is boneheaded. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the truth of the running for president is, is that we elect uh, not the best person, but the least worst person, uh, except for 2016. Yeah, yeah, 2016, we managed to go all the way. So uh, I, I guess that I've kind of, you know, long-windedly framed the discussion, which is uh, if uh if there's going to be success on the part of uh, the Democrats in uh, stopping the the bleeding, if you will, uh, how they do that is going to come down to their strategy about impeachment and afterward, uh, and how that impacts on the election or afterward. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, I think Nancy Pelosi's got it uh, pretty well in hand. And uh, I, I would just say, parenthetically, I would never, ever want to play poker with her. Well, I mean, she's clearly she knows how to count uh, that we've been told that. And uh, and that's helpful. But McConnell also knows how to count. Yeah, but McConnell's playing a, a weak hand. Pelosi's, I think. Pelosi has uh, uh, a more strategic uh, view. And how do you think that's going to play out in short, uh, you know, simple terms for people like me? Um, in simple terms, I think, um, I think there are 22 GOP senators uh, up for re-election. I think, uh, I think we're... A, as we go into a formal impeachment and a Senate trial, I think there's going to be uh, a lot of pressure placed on those people, people like uh, Susan Collins in Maine. Uh, I think people like Susan Collins uh, will hold the key that they need to 
people like that need to vote the Constitution much more than they need to vote for their party or their president. What what scares me is is that uh, I think uh, Mitch McConnell could uh, manipulate things to get 16 GOP votes for removal, which would be less than uh, necessary. Um, and uh, therefore, Trump would prevail. On the flip side, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of GOP senators up for re-election who have to um, count on support from independents and some Democrats in their states to get re-elected. And for them, they're, they're walking a tight rope. Uh, they don't want to get primaried and they don't want to lose the, uh, the general election. And there are two, two uh, different um, thresholds that they need to cross. So, net net, what do you think is going to happen? Net net, I think uh, I think Trump gets impeached. Trump faces a trial in the Senate, and we're so close to the 2020 election that the trial will be deadly for Trump. Trump will not recover from the trial, even if he gets acquitted. Did you see the uh, CNBC re- uh, report about how if the economy stands up? then uh, Trump will be reelected. I know you sent it to me. I haven't looked at it yet. I've been... Uh, well, that, that's basically what it says. It says that, you know, uh, you'll have enough in the Electoral College and the, uh, in the heartland uh, to be able to, in fact, raise uh, his numbers uh, over 2016. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think I think he's going to lose in a landslide. He's underwater in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and elsewhere. I don't see him recovering from this. All right, I'll be in touch. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Dennis Pombriant. Thanks, Steve Gilmore. <laughs>